You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. How are we? Good. Good to see you guys this morning. I am John Ludovina, our pastor of Family Discipleship. Got a good bit of uh, work to do this morning, so I'm going to be booking in the first half. We'll slow down a little bit towards the end. Um, But before we get started, I wanted to give you a quick update on a resource that we've got coming soon. Uh, As you know, if you've been around any length of time, we love the Bible. There's a reason for that. Uh, We believe absolutely that God reveals himself in his word to us so that we can know him and abide with him. And as we abide with him in his word, he grows fruit in us, spiritual vibrancy and life and wisdom. And so we, as as staff and as a church, we put a lot of time and money into equipping you to abide with God through his word regularly. So as we are preparing for the Christmas season, let me just clarify, we are not in the Christmas season yet. We are in the Thanksgiving season, one holiday at a time, folks. Take down the tree. Okay, whatever. Anywho, it's not the point. But as we prepare to later enter the Christmas season, uh, we have put together an Advent guide for you. And so this Prepare Him Room Advent Guide uh, will be available starting next Sunday. Uh, We've got daily devotionals to read God's Word and abide with Him starting December 1st, running all the way through Christmas. We've also got a host of other resources in there. We've got weekly family devotional guides and candle lighting devotions and uh, other readings and Spotify playlists that go along with the theme for the weeks and just a whole bunch of good stuff because we love you and we care about your spiritual growth. take that really seriously. I do want to let you know they're going to cost $5, which is just our cost to make them. But if money is an issue for you, don't let it be an issue. If you can afford $2, excellent. If you can afford $0, we want you to have it because what we care most is you abiding with God in his word. And I know for some of you, you could actually afford $10 for it, even though it only costs five, which would cover the cost of yours and someone else's. Wonderful. Go for that. I know you guys always love to be generous when it comes to that kind of stuff. So uh, let me pray for us and we'll dive in this morning. Um, Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that you long to abide with us. Thank you that that is what Christmas is about. That at the center of the universe is a God who gives himself away over and over and over again to normal, everyday, broken, sinful people like us who do not deserve you. I just pray that this resource would be a blessing, that it would uh, bear fruit, and that we all together would uh, continue to take more steps in knowing you and being transformed into the image of Jesus who loved people with his whole life, all the way to his death on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, We pray it all in his precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are studying through the life of David, and two weeks ago we hit a landmine. Uh, King David, the best of us, the man after God's own heart, uh, blows up his life, commits sexual assault, murders one of his closest warriors, Uriah, ruins many lives in the process. And last week, we got the great news that God does not quit on David in the midst of his failure. He continues to pursue him. He sends Nathan to confront him, and David repents. 
He actually uh, writes Psalm 51, this beautiful treatise on grace and sin and repentance. And yet, despite his repentance, David's sexual sin is not his only arena of failure in his life. Today we are looking at David's relationship with his children, uh, and I'm going to just warn you, it's pretty disastrous. If you've got a Bible, you can go to 2 Samuel 13. If you don't have one, there are Bibles on the end of the rows. Ask real nice, someone will pass that down to you. And while you're flipping there, uh, let me remind us of one thing we've already talked about and then set us up for one thing that will give us the backdrop for everything we're looking at today. Uh, first thing I want to just remind us of is the Old Testament is largely descriptive more than it is prescriptive. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. What we mean when we say that is the Old Testament describes, descriptive, real people, real families, real historical events. But it doesn't always take the time to tell us what to do. Whereas the New Testament is much more prescriptive. Do this, do it like this, like prescription medicine. It tells us exactly what to do, avoid sunlight, the whole thing. Um, which means with the Old Testament, uh, we have to do more interpretive work, often based on the final result of the narrative, whether we're reading a positive descriptive to emulate or whether we're reading a negative descriptive to avoid. So you got to look at the final fruit of the story. Does it go good? Does God's blessing flow? And it's like, okay, good, we should walk like this. Or does it lead to chaos and pain and breakdown, in which case we should avoid whatever it was to lead to that end? So this is why, uh, biblically speaking, but there's polygamy in the Bible isn't actually an argument at all. Yes, there is polygamy in the Bible, along with all kinds of other sinful behavior, and over and over again, polygamy leads to breakdown and chaos and pain. It's not being celebrated, it's being lamented. Today, as we look at David's relationship with his children, we are going to see negative descriptive that we can draw out some practical applications for our lives on what to avoid. Uh, secondly, I just want to make sure to see all of this breakdown correctly and all this negative descriptive correctly. We need to know God's original design and intent for families, for multi-generational family units. And so actually, I've put together this chart. I've used it some in personal counseling. I'm sharing it today publicly for the first time with you, uh, just because I love you. This was God's intended design for families. That if you stack generations on top of each other, if you've got grandparents, parents, kids, you could keep going up, that God's grace, wisdom, love, and discipline is supposed to be flowing into the grandparents, who are then passing it down to their kids and to their grandkids. The parents are walking in God's grace, wisdom, love, and discipline. They're flowing that down to their kids. And so the end result of all of this is that family units were intended to be this beautiful cascading waterfall of God's goodness being shared from generation to the next, telling of his great works, teaching his law and his beautiful design for life. And wouldn't that be nice if that described our families? And for some of you, it really does. Praise God, what a blessing. But for a large majority of us, this does not look anything like our families. Because as soon as Genesis 3 hits and sin enters, it brings ruinous effect on the design for families. So the reality when it comes to families now is that along with God's grace, wisdom, love, and discipline, there's also a mixture of sin and pain, and it's going to be red arrows that come up right there. Sin, pain, and foolishness is now mixed in with whatever good you received from your parents and from your grandparents. 
all of us inherit some mixture of goodness and blessing and God's original design, as well as generational sin and brokenness and foolishness and pain. So some of you have just inherited all kinds of pain from your family. The people who are supposed to give you security and warmth and love instead gave you hurt and wounds, anger, depression, anxiety, substance addiction issues. The way one of our pastors said it is, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Yeah, me too. That hurts. And so the goal for all of us is that Jesus would help us grow to limit how much red we're passing down to the next generations and to maximize how much of his goodness and wisdom and love and beauty we would be flowing down into future generations in our family. So uh, let me just make sure this is clear for all of us. For those of you who are actively parenting or thinking about parenting or work with kids or work with student groups or Kid Town, there's going to be some just obvious practical application for your lives today. But for all of us, we have inherited something, and so interpreting what's been handed to us will be practical application for your life. As well, for all of us, God calls us to have an impact on future generations, whether there are kids, genetically speaking, or not. So all of this applies to all of us. I don't want to hear anyone say at the end of this, well, that wasn't really for me, that was just for parents. Liar. Okay, here we go. Uh, David hands down a mixture of red sin and pain mixed into the good he gives in his waterfall. We're going to zoom in on a particularly troubling story with David's kids in 2 Samuel 13. We'll start in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. You're going to notice that's a problem very quickly. Verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Absalom is lovesick with a, not Absalom, Amnon is lovesick with a twisted, perverted love for his half-sister Tamar. Now, in this radically conservative culture, unwed royal virgins lived together, secluded from the company of men. That's Tamar. Uh, they weren't allowed to be with a man without witnesses present. We'll actually find out later in the story uh, that Tamar uh, wore long sleeves to publicly signify to everyone, I'm a virgin, can't be alone with a man. That's the rules, that's how it works. So Amnon can't figure out a way to get around the rules to get to her. Verse 3. But Amnon had a friend, not really, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Crafty cousin Jonadab notices something is wrong, and he presses Amnon about it. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, well, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now that seems strange to us, but the evil genius of Jonadab's plan is he's actually getting Amnon to trick David into leveraging his own fatherly and kingly authority to put his own daughter in Amnon's harmful path unbeknownst to David. Keep reading. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. 
Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. David falls right into Jonadab's evil trap. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. I'm too sick. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Okay, so once again, like we saw two weeks ago, there's an abuse of power here. No one, none of the servants stopped to say, wait a second, Amnon, she's a virgin and she's not allowed to be alone in the presence of a man. Amnon, as David's oldest son, is the future king, and everyone just obeys without question. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them to the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Remember, David, her dad, and the king told her to take care of Amnon, so she's stuck. She doesn't really have any options here. Verse 11. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. It's awful. It's sickening. He has no ability to hear her pleas. No recognition that she's an image bearer of God. He just wants her, and he uses his strength to take her. Now, two chapters ago with David and Bathsheba, we, we went in pretty deep on sexual assault and victims of sexual assault. If you relate personally to Tamar, that's not really where we're going this morning, but I would encourage you strongly to go back, listen to that sermon if you weren't here for it. We have lots of resources. We'd love to engage wherever you're at in your story. That's just not our focus uh, for this morning. And for today, I want to help make sure that we're connecting the dots of the larger story. Because 2 Samuel 11 is when David forces himself on Bathsheba and then in cover-up mode murders her husband Uriah. Chapter 12, Nathan confronts him and then you literally flip the page to chapter 13 and David's son is raping his half-sister Tamar. Now some time passes in there for sure. David and Bathsheba lose a child, they get pregnant with Solomon, have a child, they, Israel wins a war, but the Bible is making a really clear connection how quickly David's sin has generational impact on his kids. And then it keeps going bad from here. Amnon's so-called love for his sister turns to hatred as he's washed over with his shame. So he realizes he's used his strength to actually expose his greatest areas of emptiness and brokenness and weakness. Like his dad, he can't deal with the consequences. He just tries to get rid of the situation. He actually gets others to do his dirty work for him, kicking Tamar out of his sight. Skip down to verse 20. And her brothers, as Tamar's brother Absalom, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house, no longer a virgin with her sleeves torn off in mourning. In her culture, Tamar is no longer marriage material. So her brother Absalom is actually protecting her and providing for her by taking her in to make sure she will have a family no matter what. Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. 
good, rightly so, but anger is not enough. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. In this text, we actually see two very different responses from Absalom and David. They're both angry, but David does nothing. He doesn't step in. He doesn't engage. He doesn't discipline his son. Now, unfortunately, this actually isn't a one-time thing in David's life and in his parenting. Later on, uh, when David's son, Adonijah, tries to steal David's throne, this is in 1 Kings 1.6, it says, David had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So we don't know for sure on Amnon, but when it comes to Adonijah's life, David never questioned him. He never corrected him. He never engaged to say, hey, what are you doing right now? Because he was too afraid of displeasing him. I think that's massively important in our culture where I see many parents struggling with fear of displeasing or psychologically damaging their children and sometimes failing to step in. By contrast, Absalom's anger turns into action. He secretly plots his revenge. Verse 23 through 29 outline that he waits for two full years then tricks David into sending Amnon into the woods with him where he gets his brother Amnon drunk and has him murdered. Now, for sure, he handles the situation in an unrighteous manner, but he actually is right in that he knows something must be done about this. Anger with no action is not enough, King David. David does nothing to correct Amnon, so his other son says, well, I'll just kill him then. His lack of response leads to a more extreme response from someone else. This whole thing is a tragedy. I mean, think about this. David's third son murders his first. Absalom then flees into hiding and is estranged from his father for five years. He then attempts to steal the throne from his father that he no longer respects because he did nothing to discipline Amnon. The first season of David's life, we see him being chased by Saul, running for his life. The last season of David's life and rule, we will now see him chased by his son, Absalom. The whole thing is a miserable, tragic ending for the most celebrated king in Israel's history. Okay, let's, let's pause and let's talk about parenting for a minute and draw out some insight and some application from this scene and this painful chapter. The first point I have, the first insight is really simple, uh, but it's just this, that parents have to be engaged. They have to. Parents have to be engaged in the lives of of their children. Now, there are a lot of really important details that we don't know exactly in the story. You can make inferences and speculate and guesses, but here's what we do know for absolute sure. In Amnon's life, he fails miserably in 2 Samuel 13. He's completely overwhelmed by his sinful desire. He loses all sense of self-control. So if you think about your kid's life as like a long arrow, 2 Samuel 13 is like this big X on the arrow. It's what you might call the incident. Something terrible has happened in your kid's life. And the problem that I see for way too many parents is we focus on the X. The wild teenager got caught sneaking out, drunk, citations involved, whatever. X has happened. Okay, engage. I must step in now. Discipline must happen. Biblically speaking, what happens before the X is just as important as what happens reactively at the X. 
Parents have to be engaged way before the ex ever happens, training them, preparing them, shaping them, steering them away from the ex, if at all possible. This whole idea of engagement kind of goes, runs hand in hand with the theme of biblical discipline, not one of our favorite words, but Hebrews 12 gives us really rich insight into all of this. This is Hebrews 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. A couple really important notes there. We don't love the idea of God disciplining his kids, but another way to think about that is God engages with his kids. Just like we saw with David, that when he had failed, when the X happened in David's life, what did God do? He didn't run. He didn't stay quiet. He didn't passively step back. He engaged. He sends Nathan to be there, to confront him in grace and love, to restore him, to redeem him. That's beautiful. The second huge little insight we get from this verse is that there's two completely different Greek words used here for discipline and chastise. So the Greek word used for chastise is mastigo. It means to punish or to scourge. It's physical consequence. By contrast, the Greek word used for discipline is paideo, is a much broader word that means to train, to teach, to instruct, to correct. So here's the big idea here. Biblically speaking, discipline is both proactive before the X and reactive at the moment of the X. Now, one pastor I heard described it like this. He said, discipline biblically is about shaping your kid for a desired end goal. Now, the best picture I know of it is like a, it's like a, statue, a sculptor who's got a big block of marble. And they are chiseling away to reveal the beautiful statue contained inside of the marble chipping away the parts that don't need to remain until their child is shaped and formed into this adult that they're trying to raise. We get even more clarity on this later in Hebrews 12, verses 9 through 11. It says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's God's desire in engaging and disciplining with his kids. Verse 10 says his goal is to, that we would share in his holiness, that he would shape and chisel us until we more and more look like the beautiful people he intended us to be instead of the marred, broken, sinful, pain-causing, pain-filled people that we are. David completely misses this trade-off that sometimes the parent's job requires temporarily displeasing your child for their long-term benefit. David misses this. He's unwilling to displease his son Adonijah. He's unwilling to engage with Amnon at the point of his massive incident and failure. It's not hard to speculate that David probably felt a lack of moral authority in his son's life based on his own moral failure. But either way, he missed that his job was to cause temporary dis displeasure for the long-term health of his kids. And the end result uh, is actually really painful. The two sons specifically that it mentions David failed to engage with are both murdered early in life. See, for us, culturally speaking, what I see with parents is we tend to have a lot of concern about being overly harsh with our kids, which is good. 
You should have a concern about that. The problem is it's like we don't know there's another category on the other side of the spectrum. So we just say, I don't want to be too harsh. I don't want to be too harsh. And we fall off a cliff on the other side of actually being too lenient and emotionally disengaging when our kids need to run into something solid. The end result, especially common for dads, is if we fall into the pattern of not engaging, we actually end up irrelevant in our kids' lives. The pattern that I see, and the broad truths, is that moms are more often guilty of over-engaging, trying to over-function their kids, and dads are too often guilty of, well, uh, mom will take care of that. Yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. I'm just going to step back. And you do that too many times, you end up irrelevant. Emotionally concerned, very kind, but actually disengaged where your kids need you the most. Uh, we, we learned a lot from this church up in Greenville called Grace Church, and we got this chart from them that I found to be really helpful when it comes to parents engaging through our child stages of development. Here's how the chart works. They break down childhood into these three basic stages, and they say that the way parenting should work is in the first stage, parents should be engaged in really limiting their kids' freedom, that little toddlers actually don't need much freedom at all that too much choice and freedom actually causes them to feel very insecure and anxious, that really toddlers should get almost no freedom at all because what you do when, you, when a parent engages and limits their freedom is you train them in humility and you train them in self-mastery. And it turns out that the same skill that a four-year-old needs to withhold his desires, to restrain himself from what he wants, is the same skill that a 14-year-old needs for self-mastery when the stakes are much higher. I think that this text would actually indicate to us that uh, somehow, don't know how, David might have done the best he could, but Amnon does not have the ability to restrain his evil desires. He does not have the skill of self-mastery. The goal then on this parenting roller coaster is that as the kid grows, we give them more and more weight, more and more responsibility, and finally in the third stage, we actually train them for independence to launch them out of our homes as healthy, mature adults who can stand on their own feet, who would call us when they need us, but mostly would be able to function fine. Unfortunately, uh, well, before we flip that, let me just say this real quick. For any of you who are actively parenting little ones, Temper tantrums in your toddler are them declaring, I should be treated like God of the universe. Everyone should bow to my desires and build their lives around me. I should always get what I want. And they're not just an annoyance that could make you go insane. They are that, but they're not just that. They are also an opportunity for you to step in and engage and say, oh, no, 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 honey. You're not God of the universe. God is. That's a way better world for all of it, way better way for this to all work. And so, no, we're not going to build our lives around your pleasures and desires. And here's the consequence, because I'm going to make sure you know this doesn't work and this can't go on. And I love you too much to let you go on undisciplined like this. And in the same way, awkward conversations with your teenagers when you're thinking, I don't know exactly what to say. I don't know if I have the moral authority to speak in what I want to say. Okay, that's actually an opportunity for you to engage anyway. Because it doesn't take too many times of you saying nothing in those moments before you accidentally become disengaged and irrelevant. 
Unfortunately, what I see most Americans' parents doing is almost the exact opposite of this chart. What is culturally normal for us is we give maximum freedom to little toddlers, to two and three and four-year-olds. We build our lives around their preferences. And then somewhere in stage two, we start realizing, wait a second, it's not as cute anymore when they push back on me constantly. And I'm not actually sure that they respect me very much at all. And then by the time the teenager's wild, we start going, oh no, panic, hit the brakes. And the parent's trying to clamp down or bring the teenager here, you fix them. It's like, I don't want to fix them. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, like, pray for Jesus to do it. I actually can't, I actually can't undo this chart if this is what you've built into your kid. It would actually take supernatural, miraculous work for God to repair and restore some of what you poorly laid the foundation for. And it doesn't work at all because the teenager knows I'm supposed to be getting ready to launch out. This isn't right. Why are you sweating me so hard? But as the parent, you know you can't just let them launch out because they're not trustworthy. In part because you trained them to be wise in their own eyes and arrogant instead of to learn humility and self-mastery early. The real end goal uh, in all of this is actually something that's out of our control as parents. Don't you love to hear that? You're going to have to pray. Our hope is that someday we would launch out kids who would become adults who would choose to seek our advice. College students, let me just say this real quick to you. Young adults, if your parents are trustworthy enough at all for you to ever call them and ask them for advice, you have no idea what kind of blessing you would do them by just making that phone call. It's a secret desire that all of us have for our kids. And parents, a lot of it's on us. Are we going to stay engaged enough that they would naturally think to make that phone call? Because they know that mom and dad have real stuff to say into the important matters of my life. And they're not going to try to overfunction for me, and they're not going to try to overcontrol me, but they're also not going to say, I don't really know what to say. Good luck. They're going to walk into it with me. That's the end goal, is that our kids would become adults that would walk alongside of us as friends. You don't get to control that, but that's actually what we're praying for. We make it a lot more likely by engaging in the important matters of their life throughout, not passively disengaging. Parents absolutely have to be engaged before the X, in the X, after the X. Even when you don't know what to do, just step in. Ask God. Do some research. Get the help you need. Okay, that's the first one. I'm done pleading. Number two, and this one's heavier. Parents have to set an example for their kids. They have to. We started with the, uh, the, the chart of the waterfall, and we said that all of us is passing down something. All of us have been passed down some mixture of sin and brokenness and good and image-bearing. In the same way, all of us are passing down something, and you've got to realize that you are giving your kids more than a financial inheritance someday and more than their genetics you're also giving them a spiritual inheritance for better or worse. David passes down his sin, his sexual brokenness, and his passivity. Now, we actually talked, we debated a little bit in teaching team whether or not it was more likely that Amnon knew about what had happened with David and Bathsheba or not. We don't know. It's speculative. Like, there's certainly a public record of David's sin and his repentance in Psalm 51, but we don't know for sure if Amnon knew about it or not. The truth is it doesn't actually matter. He either knew about it 
and knowingly chose to walk in his father's footsteps. Or he didn't know about it, and either way, he had received a spiritual inheritance from his dad, and he walked in his footsteps anyway. The point is actually it doesn't matter whether he knew or not. He received something from his dad. He received a pattern to walk in. I mean, like chapter 13 is almost like this bizarro, twisted, even worse version of chapter 11. Because we pass down this biblical concept of generational sin. Some, some children choose to repeat, don't even choose to, are trapped in repeating the sins of their parents. Others rebel and run the opposite way as far as possible. So a good friend of mine was talking about how his grandfather was an abusive alcoholic, just a terribly harsh and hard man. And his dad, who is wonderful by contrast, went the absolute opposite way and actually never ruffled feathers at all. Much kinder, much more tolerable, but actually failing on the other side of the spectrum. Some of us, we, we respond to the, what's been handed to us by running the opposite way, and we fail in a completely inverse direction. And one of our favorite leadership quotes that applies very much to parenting is from Wayne Cordero. It says, you can teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And there's a reason why we have phrases like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, like father, like son. It's certainly the case for Amnon and David. Like his dad, Amnon is controlled by his sexual desires. He takes those desires out on a woman who has no choice in the matter. And then he can't deal with the consequences after the fact. And I need you to hear me here on this one because it's not just that we pass down what we do. We also pass down who we are. You pass down spiritual baggage, perspectives, attitudes on all kinds of things. Who you are when no one is watching is having a profound impact on your children that I can't even fully explain why except that I know it does and it is. And I've counseled enough children and heard the things that they've said about their parents and I can connect the dots enough times. They go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The things we don't do have a profound impact. And this is the hardest part, okay? It's weighty already, this is the hardest part. Even if you work your hardest and try your best to pass down an overwhelming waterfall of God's grace and wisdom and love to your kids, you're still passing down a mixture. Every single one of us pass down some sin tendencies to our children, some broken perspectives and thought processes. And so as Christians, the actual way that we give our kids an example to follow is not by acting like we are the perfect moral authority for them to emulate, but we actually have to openly confess and repent in front of our kids and encourage them not to follow in some of our footsteps. We don't know if David ever sat down with his sons and said, hey guys, here's how I screwed up royally. Please don't repeat my mistakes. We don't have any record that he did. Either way, his sons didn't get the, the warning. Uh, so in, in my life, um, as far as I know, six generations of Ludovina men before me uh, have cheated on their wives. I can have Jesus in my heart, but I got grandpa in my bones. And I am praying desperately for Jesus to let that pattern die with me, that that would not be the waterfall I pass down to my kids. And that's going to involve some 
awkward conversations with my boys. And that's going to have to involve me openly and honestly confessing where I struggle, where I am weak, because I am I have not inherited strength when it comes to sexual restraint and sexual sin. I've inherited weakness. And I want something better for my boys. The truth is that outside of Jesus, we are bound, we are chained to foolishly pass down sin that was given to us. And you could even rightly say, but it's not my fault that I was given this. And I'd say, okay, it is your fault for the sinful addition that you're going to add into the mix. And what are you going to do about it either way? Our hope is that Jesus breaks the chain of sin that would otherwise ruin our families for generations. This is how Peter describes the gospel in 1 Peter 1.18. He says, we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. When it comes to my sons, I plead the blood of Christ as hope for them to be free from some of the pain that I've inherited from six generations of men. In every way you fail as a parent, God is a perfect father whose son has poured out his precious blood to redeem your failures. You're gonna have to know that to have hope in your parenting. You're gonna have to pray a lot. God, shift the mixture of the waterfall of what I'm passing down. I wanna pass down as much of your goodness and grace and love and wisdom as possible. And for that to happen, it's going to require that you be disciplined and shaped by God. It's going to require that you confess your sin and repent in front of your kids regularly, which is hard and embarrassing, but necessary. Let me just deal with this. In case you're the one in here thinking, but if I confess my sin, that is what will undermine my credibility. No, it will not. That is what will point to Jesus' credibility. And your kids will trust you more because you were honest with them than trying to keep up the appearance of you being a wonderful, perfect, good Christian all the time. Good Christians are the ones who repent the most freely and openly and honestly. Be that kind of Christian for your kids. Let me talk real briefly about how we deal with what's been passed down to us. Talked a lot about what we're passing down. But for all of us, we have received some mixture in the waterfall of our inheritance spiritually. Uh, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Hebrews 12 says that as a truism, all of our parents did the best they could. And for some of you, that's a hard pill to swallow. And for some of you, you're going to have to realize that your parents inherited a lot of stuff from generations before them. You're going to have to grow in some grace and forgiveness for people who feel like monsters sometimes. But in general, our parents did the best they could. Biblically, we're called to honor them. One of the ways we do that is by receiving the good. I remember uh, a few years after I found out that my dad had cheated on my mom, she, she called me to tell me, John, all you ever say about your dad is the worst things he's given you. He is not a demon. He is not a monster. He's a sinful man. You're going to have to acknowledge the good he's given you too. It's coming from my mom who had been cheated on by him. It was hard to ignore. She was right. I know some, some of us received all kinds of beauty and goodness from our families. Praise God. Thank him. Thank them. If you haven't taken the time this afternoon, give them a phone call and just say thank you for the massive amount of good you gave to me. A lot of my friends didn't get that. Thank you. What a blessing. Do that. Thank God and thank them. 
Now, for those of us who have received a lot of brokenness and pain, we honor our parents by acknowledging the, the good they did give us, and when it comes to the bad that they've given us, there are three ways to respond. And respond with denial. We can act like it has no impact on us. We can kick the can further down the road and deal with it later. But you will deal with it. Denial is only a temporary Band-Aid solution. What it does in the temporary is it creates raging blind spots in your life that everyone else can see, but you can't. Denial is just a way to delay your own healing that Jesus would like you to walk in. I don't recommend it. Option two we can take a victim mentality. So it's quite the opposite of denial. We see all the bad that's been handed to us so clearly that we actually find ways to blame everything in our lives on the generational sin that's been given to us. And biblically speaking, that's a miss too. You're a combination of what's been passed down to you and your own sinful decisions. And blame shifting everything onto them doesn't actually help you grow. It just keeps you stuck in it. At some point, you've got to decide which one is my primary identity, what was handed to me by my family or what's been given to me by my Father in heaven. Generationally, the older, older generation tended to deal more with number one, and our younger generation tends to deal more with number two. We're just talking broad strokes. And finally, number three, much better than either of those, you can take a redemptive view. It's better than either of those because it's not even based on what you do necessarily. It's acknowledging the fact that in the midst of the brokenness that's been given you, God intends to use it. He intends to grow you through it. He intends to comfort you in it and then train you to be a comfort to others who are walking in it as well. The God of the universe is a redemptive God who is not bound by what you are bound by. He's bigger than it and he's able to set you free. I mentioned the six generations of sin passed down to me. Uh, for a while in college, after I found out about my dad, um, it kind of just wrecked me. I, I started, I really went through a season where I hated him. And I started to hate, especially, any time I would look in the mirror and see his genetics in my face, I hated the DNA in my veins. I hated when I started getting this really specific skin condition on my leg that was exactly the one I had grown up watching him put ointment on. And I hated that in all those physical reminders, they were, they were a stronghold for spiritual attack that would just over and over again blast me with, John, you are your dad. John, you are your dad. Good luck, buddy. Doesn't matter what you do, you are destined to become him. You are destined to walk in the path, the foolish path, the painful, sinful path that he has walked. And those spiritual attacks are particularly powerful, all, like all spiritual attacks that are particularly powerful, like all lies that are particularly powerful. They're powerful because they're rooted in some truth. I can have Jesus in my heart, but I got dad in my bones. And God really helped uh, set me free uh, with this particular verse in Romans 8, 29. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And it slapped my face. 
Because according to the gospel, God has given me a new destiny. I am not anymore destined and bound to become my father. I am destined by my new heavenly father to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Now, and I don't know about you, but I need that when it comes to what's been passed down to me. And that is true for every one of you and whatever mixture you've gotten. And you've got a good heavenly father who, who has given you a blood-bought gift in his son of a new destiny. He is not going to quit on you. He is going to be faithful to finish what he has begun in you. Whatever practical, spiritual freedom you need, his arm is not too short to save and to give it to you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond by singing and by receiving communion to remember that Jesus' precious blood has set us free from the futile ways we've inherited from our forefathers. God, thank you that you know better than we know every family history in this room this morning. God, thank you that you are not surprised as we so often are to see the connections between our forefathers and our own foolishness, our own pain, our own sinful patterns. God, thank you that you love us enough to engage us in the midst of the things that we don't even want to engage with. And God, thank you for the cross of Jesus where he has paid to break the chains where he has paid to purchase us a new destiny, a new hope, a power stronger than our genetics. So as we come and receive communion, God, would we confess our own sinfulness and what's been handed down to us and our need for you to repair and set us free? Would we confess every way that we need you to shift the waterfall in our lives and help us to live out of the new identity that is true for us, whether it feels true or not. We pray it all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.